This episode is brought to you in partnership with MUSC's new Health and Wellness Institute. Most of us think of MUSC as a place we go when we're really sick and we need help desperately, but what I want to highlight this season is all the incredible, amazing things that are happening at MUSC to keep you from needing their services, really. I mean, all of this research, innovative treatment, there's really cool stuff going on at MUSC, and I cannot wait to bring some of these physicians and healthcare providers and researchers onto the podcast so that you can hear behind the scenes of exactly what's going on. You are listening to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Claire O'Brien. In healthcare, we have so many questions about what's trending versus what's actually the truth. So on this show, we're going to get to the bottom of it. It's health, it's wellness, it's beauty, explained by the people who actually know what they're talking about. Hey guys, welcome back to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I am your host, nurse practitioner Claire O'Brien, and I am so honored today. I have my former boss, friend, mentor, Dr. David Cole, um, the president of the Medical University of South Carolina, also a practicing um, oncologic breast surgeon, and I'm just thrilled that you've taken the time today. So thank you, Dr. Cole, for being here. Yeah, Claire, I'm excited to be here, so thanks for having me. I'm it's always great to have a conversation and, and, and good to catch up with you Yeah, um, at any point in time. So, yeah. So he, Dr. Cole was my first boss as a nurse practitioner, um, which, you know, I just want to say uh, I'm sorry for that. I'm sure I was a hot, hot mess coming <laughs> fresh out of school, but it was, it was so much, he was so much fun to work with and, but also such a talented and, and also caring person. I just, I learned so much from you. So I'm really excited to, to talk today. Um, but what not everybody knows you as well as I do. So why don't you just kind of give us a little background on who you are and how you got where you are? So, you know, my, uh, my day job is I'm president of the Medical University of South Carolina. And that, that's a, a lot and maybe a whole nother podcast where MSC is going and all the awesome things that people work on daily to make an impact in daily, people's lives. But at heart, by training, by background, who I am, I'm a surgeon. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I actually came, we, we moved here, Kathy, my wife, and we had now, uh, gosh, our oldest is now 30, right? She was two years old when we moved here in 94. Mm-hmm. So I was recruited out of fellowship as a surgical oncologist with the onset of a new cancer center concept at MESC. And they were hoping that maybe I could, um, um, you know, take care of patients and maybe do some sort of research or do something that might impact in terms of a cancer center. So the short version of that um, would be that they haven't figured out how to get rid of me yet, you know, as president. Um, but I would there. say that an essential part, of, yeah, the, the, the short, the, the essential parts. I'm um, at. I am a surgeon. I think it's essential that I uh, that I'm grounded in terms of who I am and what I do. You know, so I still operate weekly. I still take care of patients. I have an awesome team. You know, you're. I guess I'm not sure how that goes in terms of generations, but the subsequent to you know, nurse practitioner Jenny's awesome, and she helps take care of 25 years of Dave Cole patients, but wow. also gets the right patient to get connected with me when they need my care. I'm part of a team. You know, most of that is around breast cancer care. Um, so there's two reasons why most people, when they say, well, gosh, when they meet me, and if they're not internally part of MUSC, if I'm in Columbia at, uh, you know, at a legislative session, uh-huh. And they find out I'm taking care, you know, I'm operating 
they'll say, well, oh my gosh, why, you, why do you do that? And, uh, and I've kind of gotten to where I say, well, the, uh, the honest truth is that the operating room is the only place I can absolutely guarantee I can stop the bleeding. Wow. You know, because anywhere else in my job is, uh, you know, I can't quite figure that out. That's kind of so profound. It's Im- <laughs> well, it's important to have, I think it's important to have a presence. I think it's important to be grounded. Right. Um, for me, that's, uh, that's uh, taking care of patients. And, um, and, you know, one thing I've evolved to through the years, despite all the ups and downs and backs and forths and strangeness and misinformation or true information about medicine and healthcare, you know, I, I think I boil down to the thought that um, it's a privilege to be given the opportunity to have a positive impact on somebody's life. You know, oh, and, and I tell students and our residents, you know, if you don't, if that's not where you are, um, you know, find another place Well, so you know, for you and what you want to do. So how did you choose specifically? So, so to become a surgical oncologist, you go through general surgery training. And then, like you said, you do a fellowship, which you did, you did your fellowship at Emory. Is that right? Or your, I did uh, general five years of general surgery residency at, at Grady, uh, uh-huh. Emory. Grady is uh-huh. a subcomponent of Grady. Um, and then I did a almost four year fellowship at the National Cancer Institute in Bethesda in oh, surgical wow. oncology, which included both clinical training and, and research. So there was a lab component and there was a clinical component. So how so did you I choose came, that? I, yeah, you know, that's a great question. When I was a resident, um, I guess trying to figure out what I want to do when I was going to grow up, um, I sort of evolved to, I wanted to be more in an academic setting because I felt that that was where things were happening right. more, you know, and, and again, it's important that people are, I, I hope that anybody's in practice and takes care of patients gives, it has a level of excellence and delivery that's, you know, that's in, that, that is beyond question, but I felt academics is more where I was drawn to. Mm-hmm. So then the question was, what does that look like? And and I, I felt like surgical oncology was a place that had a huge upside in terms of future impact. And also as a surgeon, something you could do that was very real in terms of, um, you know, what it means to patients. I, you know, it's interesting, you know, my, uh, through the years, often people, when they find out you're a surgical oncologist and say, well, gosh, that must be a depressing field. You know, you're dealing with people with cancer and, right. um, you know, not everybody does well and so forth. And, you know, that, that is true. You know, I, w- I wish we always tell my patients on a weekly basis of, I, I wish I had a tablet called cancer be gone. I'd give it to you today, right. you know, and, and right. we would worry about something else and go get a coffee. You know, but 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 as a surgeon, and I'm speaking as a very biased surgeon and as a surgical oncologist, there is so much positive that you can do and help somebody, even if you don't cure them of cancer in terms of quality of life, you know, giving them an ability to reach their next goals, right. you know, doing something that is a, um, a to, you know, to me, it's been, I find that very meaningful where even if the answers aren't perfect, you're doing something that is positive with and, and really, it's a, it's, a, it's a collaborative journey with the patient, ideally. You know, so when you walk down that path, nobody wants to be diagnosed with cancer. That's not something you plan on in your life, right? Right. No, no, nobody uh, anticipates that diagnosis. So, um, but, but they do want to ideally have somebody who cares and actually has some answers in terms of next steps, even if the answers aren't great, and that you can walk down a path to get to where you ideally want to go. You know, and, and those are sort of, I know those, those are more conceptual sort of thoughts, but I think those are 
approaches that I think are, you know, from my, you know, observation and years in experience taking care of patients, those are things that are meaningful to individuals, right, right. as a patient. And, and to me, so then going back to your question, I'm sorry, I'm wandering around. You know, <laughs> I wanted to do something that as a surgeon, actually, my first uh, thought was I struggled whether to become a surgeon or not. You probably never knew that. No. You know, so um, most of my friends when I was in medical school had convinced me that being a surgeon had, you know, they're not caring, they're rational, sort of focused on just sort of procedures, and you have no relationship with your patients at all. Yeah. And you're a technician. I can and, see that. You know, so I, strugg I struggled with that. Um, but surgical oncology, one of the things that appealed to me as a possibility initially, but then I think became a reality, was that I felt like maybe in the world of cancer care, as opposed to I'm a trauma surgeon and, you know, I come in, I take care of somebody, they go home, I may or may not ever see them again. In the world of cancer care as a surgeon, you actually have a longitudinal ability to have an impact and a relationship with a patient that's that's bilateral. It's not about, you know, unilateral, but you have a ability to develop a relation, have a positive impact that's meaningful for that, for that patient. I'll give you a specific example that, you know, you hold some moments sort of dear to your heart, right? You know, so about... 10 years ago, uh, Thanksgiving, it was mm -hmm. Thanksgiving day, I got a text from a patient that I had done a whipple procedure on for pancreatic cancer uh, 10 years prior. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the text was, Dr. Cole, 10 years to the day. Thank you. Oh, gosh. You know, Ooh. dagger to the heart. Yeah. So that's very, you know, that's meaningful, right? right. You know, so right. here's this person who's saying thank you you know, and, and it's, and, and that they've been able to walk past the dire diagnosis 10 years later, that's a rare, that's a rare moment, you know? So that to me connects with why did I go into surgical oncology? It's like, yeah, I guess that was actually true. I've been able to have a field which is meaningful, that has an impact on people that's dynamic, that there's a lot of positive things happening as we move into the future. And I would say even more so that's the case today. I think it's interesting too, just hearing kind of that you, differentiate surgical oncology from other, you know, other surgical subspecialties, you also, you have that relationship with the patient because in, in breast in particular, there's a lot of conversation about what to do surgically. And so, whereas some, some cancers that you might, you might operate on, it's very clear. We have to do, you know, X, Y, Z to, to clear you of the cancer or, you know, it's not, it's not going to work. Like you said, a, a Whipple, which is for pancreatic cancer. And, um, and that's kind of your, one of your only surgical options. Whereas then talking about breasts specifically, there are several options and, and you've really got to walk the patient through, okay, if you choose option A, this is what this might look like. You know, these treatments may come in conjunction with option A, whereas if you choose option B, this is what this might look like and recovery and, and you're seeing them back for surveillance, you know, for the next two, three, five years, often, often for these patients. So it really is, it, it is different. Like you were describing, you do have a little bit more of a, of a relationship with these patients. So if you've been following DabbleCo and me for any length of time, you know that I'm super careful with anybody that I endorse or any partnership or brand here. So the goal is always to share evidence-based medicine and things backed by actual science with our audience and our followers. So I was thrilled when BetterHelp approached me to do a partnership with them. So thank you so much to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. 
BetterHelp is an online platform that connects you to counseling in an incredibly convenient and affordable way, which I think are the two biggest barriers to counseling, access and affordability. So I was actually really surprised when I looked up their rates for counseling. They were a third of what I feel like I've ever heard and what I've personally paid. Um, It solves both of the problems with literally the click of a button on the internet. So I have personally seen the benefits of counseling. I know firsthand how important it is, and I know it plays a crucial role in mental health. So check them out, and they will know that I sent you, and you'll get 10% off your first month of counseling if you head to betterhelp.com slash dabbleco. Um, so it's super easy, betterhelp.com slash dabbleco. Thanks, guys. Absolutely. In fact, I would, I would add to that, you know, years and years past, you know, you had a hammer and you had a nail and you hit the nail with the hammer. Right. You had no options. Right. 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 You know, but especially in a world of breast cancer, my gosh, there's so much progress that's been made. And, and so um, from a surgery uh, perspective alone, we now have many more, and I would say emerging options that have equal outcome, less impact on the patient, right. meaning adverse impact. You know, think about uh, 40 years ago, which may seem like ancient history, but but in you know mm, in the not it's anymore a to an me. Eye, right? Yeah. Of, yeah. Right. So yeah. So so radical mastectomy was the standard. That was it. Right. Radical radical mastectomy was and is still in the rare occasions it's ever needed, a highly deforming, emotionally impactful disease that leaves patients disabled. And right? that's where you removal remove the breast, removal the whole breast. Oh yeah, sorry, you're gonna strap it. Go ahead. Yeah, no, yeah, it's Radical mastectomy, remove the breast, okay? Uh-huh. Remove the pectoralis major, minor muscles, the major muscles on your uh, chest wall. Right. Do a full actually lymph node dissection, you know? And so now in today's world, that, that's rarely needed. I mean, right. it, if somebody somehow, you know, has an advanced cancer, I won't say never, but, you know, lumpectomy with radiation increasingly, I, I would be willing to predict that at some point in the near future, we're going to have um, minimally invasive surgery involving the breast that will maybe even obviate the need for a lump, quote, a lumpectomy, you know? So really, and then adding, yes, I would say I would be willing to predict in 10 years, it'll be that sort of technical sort of advancement. So, and a, so, so a lumpectomy for, for people that say, so a lumpectomy is where you're like, if you would imagine, and, and this is, would be big, but just for the purposes of like imagining what we're talking about. So imagine the whole breast and then imagine a golf ball inside the breast is the tumor and you're just taking out the golf ball instead of taking out the whole breast. But you're saying, That's even, right. let's say the golf ball, instead of taking a golf ball size, you really only need a marble or, or a pencil eraser size. You think you'll be in the place potentially in a few years where you can just take out that, that small of an amount of tissue. Sure. Well, and, and sort of, and it put that, you know, put that in context, there's so many advances in terms of systemic therapy, neoadjuvant chemotherapy and things that are less uh, harmful to the patient, better impact on the cancer. So um, much more with much more frequency today, patients, um, if they have a larger tumor might get neoadjuvant chemotherapy and a, maybe that golf ball that you were describing shrinks away to where you can't feel or see anything. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that's happening now. Right. You know, I wish I could say for hundred percent, hundred percent of patients now, but it happens with some frequency. So then we go in and we remove the area because we want to make sure we're not missing something. Right. So we do a lumpectomy because we want to make sure microscopically that the deal is done. 
You know what I mean? That makes so, sense, right? So, so in con, and and then also there's two different intersections. There's increasingly effective tools that are short of surgery um, that could maybe ablate an area, radio frequency ablation, where you have a needle that gets inserted into a region and you provide energy and it basically kills those cells within a certain region. So that so if we knew with some assurance that you could post neoadjuvant, as an example, in a patient who's had an apparent complete response, one, maybe you don't need it, uh, any further surgery, or two, maybe you could do it with a minimally invasive uh, insurance policy, right? Just to make right. sure that the area where it was was addressed. So I, I'm making it up a little bit, but not really, in, in that some of those things are current realities. Some of the things are future possibilities, right? So, so all those things are very exciting. And the hard part as a patient, I think, is that, you know, ironically, in years past, it was very, you didn't have any confusing array of possibilities of what you may or may not do at any point in time because you only had one choice. So this right? is what we do. Now yeah. we've got, this is what we do. Mm-hmm. But now the great news is, and this is to me a message uh, that I try to get to my patients when I you know, talk to them. It's like, listen, we, you know, the great news is we have a lot of tools, we have a lot of possibilities, and we have better outcomes. You know, right. so, but, but we have to walk so far down a path before we know where next to go. And sometimes that can be just confusing. We're going to have to hold hands and walk down a path together, right? And, and have the sort of faith that we can, that we will get to where we need to be. And, and I always talk about basic principles. So with respect to the breast, the principles are, in my opinion, get rid of the cancer and minimize the chance of it coming back, right? And everybody nods their head and they say, yeah, sure. That makes sense to me. I want that. So everything I described with all that radio frequency and neoadjuvant and so forth, you put that in that context is like neoadjuvant got rid of the cancer. Everything else we're trying to do is to minimize the chance of it coming back. Right. Right. An insurance policy. So, so I think there's just a lot of awesome things. I, I would also be willing to predict that um, eventually, and some cancers are starting to get to this, that, and I, I would be willing to say that breast is going to be one of the early adopters of this concept. That as a that breast cancer as a dangerous life threatening diagnosis will very soon be converted to a chronic disease. Okay, you know, th- Say think more. about di- think about diabetes. Okay, hundred years ago, before insulin, if you were diagnosed with diabetes, you were going to die pretty quickly and right. did mm-hmm. right because your hypoglycemia. hyperglycemia. I mean, you just you. You wasted, no it was known as a wasting it. No way to control it. We didn't have the tools. And But what happens now? Um, yes, there can be out, bad outcomes. Yes, people can have things that happen. But for the vast majority, hundreds, certainly across the world, hundreds of millions of people, they're alive with, with an excellent quality of life with that diagnosis and they manage it, right? Right. Well, let's talk so about before they even get to that scenario. So, and I know... I know we, we, you know, we talked a little bit before and sometimes it seems so clear to us as, you know, when you're in it all day, every day, it may seem like, oh, well, yes, obviously these are the things that you do, but, but what do you tell, so you see, you also see, I want people to understand this too, that as a breast surgeon, not all of your patients have breast cancer. So you might see patients that have, um, you know, cysts or fibrocystic breast disease, and they they might have to have things removed periodically. And a lot of women, particularly women my age that are younger and thinking in more preventative terms. So before you even get to that point, 
what are things that that we know are are key in, in prevention? Because right, this whole series with MUSC, right, has been about the Health and Wellness Institute and the neat, really cool things that MUSC is doing on on that front. Um, but I, I think it's so important for people to understand why why would MUSC even want to get into that space and and for your particular area? I mean, why is it important for your patients? to keep an eye on different areas of their, of their health. Yes. And thanks, by the way, thanks for uh, asking. I think it's really important. Our best place in medicine and specifically in cancer is preventive, right? Right. You know, so, um, so how do we get upstream of that in the, in the world of breast cancer? I think there's three major buckets. Um, and I'll, I'll round back to this if we have time. One is things we don't have control over mm-hmm. our genes. Uh-huh. Right, I was born with it. Here's my risk. And we're going to talk um, about that. Another one is um, your environment, okay. right? You know, some of it is sort of access to care and this and that sort. And then the one that you're focusing on, I'm sure, is things you do have control over, mm-hmm. right? As a patient, as an individual, you know, and the and the, and the things that are probably sort of obvious, but let's just just talk about it. You know, obesity, overweight, um, that's a risk factor for breast cancer. And you say, well, okay, how, how does that work? Mm, there's a lot we don't know, but some things we do know in general, the greater weight you carry, the more fat that you have. A byproduct of fat is estrogen. Estrogen over time, if you have excessive or prolonged exposure to estrogen, it does provide a risk factor for breast cancer. Mm-hmm. So um, healthy eating, healthy activity, you know, all the things that lead to uh, ideal or more normal weight reduces your risk of breast cancer per se. Right. You know, so and and by the way, a lot of other cancers, you know, so when I'm asked, you know, it's like, well, what do you think about, you know, what about diet? I said, gosh, eat a healthy diet, you know, high fiber, you know, to avoid excessive fats, th- things that are, you know, that are healthy in general, also are healthy for you as a breast cancer sort of a risk for breast cancer patient. One that's maybe an uncomfortable topic, especially in the post COVID age, um, alcohol consumption. Yeah. You know, so, you know, um, that leads to, you know, everything in moderation. I don't think total abstinence is required, but the data would suggest that alcohol, if you have more than one or two drinks a day, over time leads to an increased risk of breast cancer. Do we know why that is? You, why for alcohol specifically? I'm not sure the mechanism is clearly defined. It's more of an association with. Okay. So if you look, so if you look at populations of patients. Um, and you say, here's your drinking habits. What's an association? You'll find that I'm not sure. And I may be correct. I certainly, I can stand corrected. I don't believe there's a known direct association between alcohol consumption, but there is an association with just like obesity, although we know a better mechanism for that. Um, things in terms of, you know, I guess, and again, you only have so much control over life, but age of childbirth, younger, the better. Right. And I think that goes under the sort of paradigm of, you know, estrogen's not evil. It's something that's a, a, an appropriate part of every woman's healthy life, right? Mm-hmm. But keeping things in balance is probably a good sort of plan. And ex- prolonged exposure during your lifetime to estrogen. Um, so that would mean early onset of uh, menses, late onset of menopause, late onset of menopause, a, prolong- a prolonged life exposure to estrogen. You know, late childbirth, which interrupts that uh, cycle of estrogen, you know, all those three factors together 
leads to an incremental increase in breast cancer risk. Um, so, so those, those are sort of lifestyle things that, that people need to think about. And, and again, those are, those are broad sort of all of us, you know, I think all of us as Americans struggle with, you know, how to maintain healthy weight, how, how do we, you know, think about a healthy diet? Um, you know, what does our alcohol consumption look like on a daily basis? Um, you know, the, the, the other piece that we maybe don't have control over, the two most significant risk factors for developing breast cancer are being a woman. That's right. By the way, 12%, 12, 12, 12% lifetime risk in a, for American women of developing breast cancer without a, any other predispositions. That's to me an unacceptable. It's pretty high. Pretty right. high. Yes. Um, age. Yeah. You know, so... So those are some facts. We all get older every day. I'm not 22 anymore, unfortunately, you know, so, you know, we all, we all have, you know, so if you're a woman and as the years go by, your risk of breast cancer increases, you know, on a, you know, on a yearly basis. Um, genetics is something that we're now starting to shine a light on. And it's been a very dynamic space, certainly over the last 10 years. So some things in the public awareness, so BRCA1, BRCA2, you know, those are, specific genes that have been associated with an increased risk of developing breast cancer. A, par a patient who has a, uh, an, a family history, mm -hmm. usually it's more than one primary relative with a breast cancer under the age of 30, that's a, that's a marker for some sort of genetic risk in general. And mm -hmm. most times we would send somebody to get genetic counseling. And sometimes not genetic counseling is not a uh, prerequisite for genetic testing it's a risk assessment, you okay. know, looking at, at your family history and what that looks like. But uh, sometimes as part of that genetic counseling, they'll say, hey, we need to do a test. So if you have a BRCA1 positive gene, that's an 80%, 80, 80 lifetime risk of developing breast cancer, not 12%, 80. That is you know? exceptionally high. I mean, that, that's, that's almost yes. a guarantee that you are more so than you're not. Supplements and vitamins are just a part of so many of our daily lives now, so how do we know what to choose in a brand? My family personally uses Thorne. Thorne has partnerships with hospitals and universities across the country, including the Mayo Clinic and Charleston's own Medical University of South Carolina. You can order any Thorne product through me when you create your account at thorne.com slash use slash dabblecoat, and you'll receive 15% off and free shipping on all your future orders. When you create your account, you will just be prompted to confirm Dabbleco as your referral and the discounts applied in the cart after you create your account. Again, that's thorn.com slash U, like the letter U, slash Dabbleco. And you can also find the direct link in the show notes. Absolutely. And that can lead to decisions about preventive treatment, including right. mastectomies right? To get rid of the tissue at risk, if you will, I'm being very objective, you know, in terms of what that looks like. So one of the things, by the way, I'm very excited. We just launched um, um, a partnership with Helix, uh, which is a genomic sequencing uh, capability where we're providing free um, uh, uh, sequencing for 100,000 patients in the state of South Carolina to be able to provide information about breast cancer, colon cancer, risk genes, that if we can get that information as a patient, we might be able to get upstream. And what the data would show would be that 
um, from other um, earlier adopter organizations that about 9% of patients have some sort of actionable item that's identified by that genomic sequencing that can have an intervention um, in terms of keeping people healthy. So, so like we're, you we're might very get excited your, about that. They would get their genes looked at specifically, and then you guys might find, say, a, a mutation that puts them more at risk for colon cancer. Where And if you're 35, you might get screened earlier than the normal age of, I think now they've lowered it to what, to 40 now? Was that right? Or 40, Correct. 45 That's right. to 40? Oh. So how, how does that impact your, your care then, just changing what their screenings will look like? Could be uh, screening. Um, occasionally, it might be action. You know, if, you're, if, you, if you were 35 and, and as a patient and you were identified with the BRCA1 gene, you know, you would start talking about, I think, the conversation of maybe I need to do something more proactive. You know, that's not every case. I think our focus would be, the more information we have, the more information we have with you as a patient, the better decisions we can make together. Right? That has to be a and, really difficult and, conversation for you to have with, with a, uh, women who are typically finding these now younger and younger because now we're in a generation where their moms have been able to get testing. So now, like my generation, for example, I'm sure you've got patients in their 20s and 30s that already know they have this mutation and that just that I mean that has to be a really difficult conversation to have. Yes, um, yes, and and I would say an increasingly frequent conversation in terms of that. I um, I've been around too long, I think. So I've been around long enough. I have second, <laughs> and I'm guessing probably third generation patients. You know, from you know somebody who had breast cancer. So. Oh gosh. But you know, the, I think the things that I look, I think I try to when we talk about sort of man, it's about managing risk, right? in the context now of breast cancer and, and the things that, that I try to emphasize one is that, well, we need to, the best we can identify what the risk is. Again, there's this big gray box called risk in the terms of breast cancer that we're trying to get better tools to understand what your risk is, but somewhere in there, you have to have a risk. You know, maybe the risk is you're the only woman in five generations that hadn't had breast cancer yet, but you, you know, you've got risk, right? No, I mean, you don't need a test to tell you that, right? Right. I think the second important piece is what I would call, and I always, when I talk to patients, I said, it's, it's, um, this can't be with rare exception. This can't be me forcing my sort of decisions or recommendations on you. This has to come from you. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a peace of mind decision. Are you waking up at three in the morning wondering and worried about after you just had your latest breast biopsy, your latest mammogram? Um, you know, when am I going to get my breast cancer? Because I know I've got a threefold risk of breast cancer. And most patients eventually, who make that decision evolve to that, you know? And, and so if a patient has risk of, you know, that's meaningful, if they've come to a peace of mind decision and said, you know, I, I need to do something that my role as a surgeon in that context is to support them in that decision to help them get health, you know, to in a healthy place, you know, beyond if it is in this case, case uh, mastectomies, right. you know, and the other two, the other part of this too is like, um, you know, we've got a lot of resources. Reconstruction is something that can uh, we often partner with uh, straight up, you know, in terms right. of that conversation, especially in a younger woman. Right. right. And we want the goal is to keep you healthy, to keep you whole, you know, so. You Which know, and that's let's, changed. Let's, like let's you said, things have is. changed so much in the last 40 years. I mean, reconstruction now is totally different than it was 40 years ago where you had 
very, you know, kind of rudimentary options. And, and now it's so different. There's so many options and it's, it's really changed so much. Um, but risk, I wanted to ask you before I forget too, I feel like we, we hear so much now about talking about things that we can control. So we hear so much about endocrine, endocrine disrupting, you know, chemicals, I'm using air, air quotes, but chemicals in maybe makeup or cleaning products. I know you probably get asked about deodorant and the aluminum and deodorant more than you, more than you care to, to talk about, but it's so interesting to me to talk about risk. And, and we're so focused on these things where we have this giant socially acceptable risk called alcohol and so as a, like as a surgeon, when you're looking at everything, and I know you've got your, your lab that's constantly studying all of this. So wh- what, do you, what do you say when people ask about things like endocrine disruptors and in our kind of daily lives? And, and how does that compare to, to other, other risks that we already talked about? Are those things that you worry about with your patients? Sure. Uh, you know, I think there's many things we do know and there's many things we don't. Right. So um, I always tell patients and individuals when they ask, you know, use common sense, you know, make balanced decisions. I think right. in many ways, the Greeks had it right. Know thyself, you know, everything in moderation. Right. right? You know, so so make make good balanced decisions. So, you know, all these things, which, you know, uh, the deodorant conversation, there's there's no scientific evidence that we can identify that would say this is a significant risk. Does it mean there's zero risk? It's almost impossible to say, but honestly, if people have been looking that hard for so long, if it was significant, we would know that. Why are people right? so focused on deodorant then? Like what, where has this come from? I feel like people are obsessed with clean deodorant. Do you think it's the proximity to the breast and the armpit? Or, I mean, people, it seems like are, cannot stop talking about clean deodorant, no aluminum. And, and this risk that everything I can find says that the risk as we know, like you said, not, nothing is 100%. It's kind of like the pregnancy conversation. We're never going to say things are 100% safe or, or 100% risk-free, but I, I don't, where, does that, where does that come from? Yeah, you know, I, I struggle with that too. I do think that um, it's maybe, a, you know, because of pro- physical proximity, people are looking for something locally that sort of, you know, might be something that causes that. You know, and people do can react to deodorants, right? You most times allergic reaction is much more common, right? right? So right. it's not like it's a totally inert project uh, pro, uh, product per se. Um, you know, I think it's a matter of prioritization, and mm-hmm. people get a little bit twisted up. And as you stated earlier, you know, I think making healthy decisions, alcohol, weight, those are things you could do that are impactful. You know, understanding your risk and then making thoughtful decisions based on based on what you do know is probably time better spent than to worry about or maybe to perseverate on things that are um, unknowns um, that you can't control. You know, so, um, you know, as we continue to move forward in healthcare and specifically in medicine and care of breast cancer, we will continue. I'm I'm hopeful that one of my things that I, that I, I hate is that in the world of prevention for breast cancer patients, we do not currently have much more um, meaningful, less impactful um, things to offer aside yeah. from, you know, 
surgery, surgery or, right. you know, estrogen blockade as a strategy, you know, mm -hmm. I'm hopeful that science uh, will, and I, again, I'm, I'm always an optimist. I would, I would expect that in the next, you know, generation that there will be very significant answers that can be easier that will make this a non-question. I, and I, again, I go back to, you don't have to have uh, two sisters and a mom that had breast cancer. You're anybody's faced with a 12% breast cancer risk. That's significant, you know? And so we all need to pay attention. I think more progress is required, but I would still say it's not like this has been static. If, if you look at what cancer care for a breast patient was in the 1950s, and then you look at what 1980s, and you look at the 2020s, totally man, different. we're making breath, breathtaking progress. Right. Well, and okay, so even in the last five or 10 years, and I, I hope you don't get mad at me for asking this question if you don't want to answer it, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to ask it anyway. Okay, so the guidelines from the, the U.S. Preventative Task Force, which is, and guidelines just so everybody knows, so guidelines are just that. They are guidelines. They're not rules. So you, so you can, you know, most people try to practice with the, within guidelines, so we're kind of all on the same page. But the, the guidelines change from baseline mammograms starting around 40 for most women, depending on risk, from 40 to, to 50. Um, and there's been a lot of controversy about that. And, and particularly in these practices like yours, who are specifically taking care of breast cancer patients. Um, is that, is that because, I mean, I, I kind of know the back end of that we were finding all these finding all these things that ended up not being cancer and potentially causing, you know, more stress and harm, but are we getting better at screening or what are, what are your thoughts on the change in the guidelines in for the, for the baseline yeah. population of most women? Sure. So let me, let me start first uh, in answering that to say that I dearly wish we had more effective screening tools. Right. You know, okay. no, because none of our tools are perfect. Mammograms, not perfect. Can you miss a breast cancer mammogram? Yes. Sure. You know, you know, uh, it can, do I have microscopic fingers on physical examination? No. You know, so, so it's a, it's an imperfect world. And I wish we had better tools. I think part of the problem when you're making broad guidelines is you're making sort of population recommendations. Right. You know, so is it, and these are for an individual patient are very uncaring statements. Right. Is it cost effective to do mammograms in 40 year old patients? Well, the data would say no. Okay. But by the way, does cancer happen to 40 year olds on occasion, breast cancer specifically? Yes. Right. And so it's really hard to look a 40 year old in the patient and say, Hey, you weren't cost effective. That, right. That feels right. very personal. Like your life was not worth with particularly for right. the, and if you get insurance in this conversation, like you're saving your life was potentially right. not worth paying for a, I don't know, $400 mammogram or whatever. Yeah. So it's, so those, to me, that's where often these sort of rubs are because, um, you know, there's the very personal side of medicine, right? An individual patient. Right. And then there's a the population side of healthcare. And there's clearly, um, I think, a rub between those sort of realities. Mm -hmm. And the fix would be having better tools that are more cost effective and less impactful, you know? So I always sort of look towards, okay, how do we get to where we need to be? We need better tools. You know, we need better imaging uh, tools that are, you know, 
you know, less expensive or less expensive because they don't precipitate the next, the next, the next, the next, you know, an anxiety and biopsies and what was that about? And this was benign and we likely thought it was the case to begin with, right? Which will so. be MRI, right? Like, so people, I think, often yes. think MRI of the breast is a far superior um, or pay, from a patient standpoint. Women might think, oh, I'd, I'd rather have an MRI than a mammogram. But what you're saying is, I mean, that leads to potentially you find all of these things that are not clinically relevant, but now you've seen them on this picture and you have to chase them down and prove that they're not clinically relevant. And it kind of puts the patient in this cycle of imaging biopsy, more imaging, more biopsies. And, and so they're, like you said, they're just, none of them, none of the tools are perfect. And in some, some patients will have all the tools, mammogram, ultrasound, MRI, in a sort of rotating manner, using them all to try to get the best picture. Exactly. And, and that brings it sort of back home to the understand your risk, right? So right. If, if we identify together a patient who's in a higher risk category, then we'll start adding more tools to in a um, early screening, early detection mode to try to minimize a chance of missing something. So you always explain, you know, you'd said it correctly. MRIs are very, they're great news with MRIs. They're very sensitive with respect to breast cancer. That's great. Um, the bad news is they're not very specific, which means a lot of benign um, uh, noise shows up in the process. And to me, that's the reason why MRIs are not used for every woman in America, because we'd blow up the world with all the, you know, the isms that show up on an MRI scan. Yes. But if you're a high-risk patient, and you know that you have, I'll make it up, you know, four times the normal average risk, mm -hmm. then for that particular patient, you're willing to walk through the noise, right? Right, right. You know, because you know you've got a greater risk. So let's get the MRI scan. And if you can then, and you will, when you get that MRI scan, have something that shows up. But once you get a good baseline, then now that tool becomes more effective. In addition to, not instead of a mammogram. So most high-risk patients will get a mammogram one six-month sequence the next six months will be mri but you only apply that mri because you know in that subset of patients they're in a high risk category so we're gonna we're gonna pay that price of an mri you know uh you know benign finding because you're you I mean you're aligned with the patient and and also the the uh third-party insurance because there's a higher chance that you're going to miss something is there a higher chance so so with fibrocystic breast or fibrocystic breast disease, whatever we're calling it now. I know it's changed. Um, sorry, guys, I haven't been in breast world in 10 years. So um, it, is there a higher chance of breast cancer with fibrocystic breast, or is it just that it's more difficult to tell on imaging and exam? Yeah. And, and by the way, congratulations. Welcome back to the world of breast. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Happy yeah, to be yeah. here. So in uh, in broad strokes, fibrocystic breast disease is not really significant ri cancer risk for breast cancer. Okay, by you itself. Know, Got I it. think I always, oh, by itself, I mean, there, there, you can always find some sort of sub, 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 sub category, but in general, it's not a significant risk factor. The, I think there's two comments on fibrocystic breast disease, and I hate to use the word disease. Mm -hmm. it, it's, to me, a part of the normal life cycle of the breast. Okay. In terms of cysts and or inflammation or breast pain or uh, fluid production, you know, lumps that can show up that are uh, part of that inflammation, so forth and so forth. Um, so I think it's the moral equivalent of telling a woman that she has fibrocystic breast disease 
It's sort of like telling a teenager they have acne. Mm, okay. okay. And some have one pimple before prom and others have their face explode for three years, five years. Right. Right. And it depends on their hormone environment, how they're reacting uh, at that point in their life, you know, all those sort of things. So in the context of breast cancer, fibrocystic breast disease makes it easier to miss the needle in the haystack because there's okay. something always going on. And what I typically warn my patients, especially when they're just had the latest mammogram with a cyst, with an aspiration, with a lump or something that, you know, you're trying to monitor is like, don't lose faith because just when you, you, if you give up and say, I'm done with this because I've just got too much to deal with, that's when we're going to miss something. Right. Right. That makes sense. So you have a, you have a busy playing, you have a busy playing field and you have to have dil diligence is the watchword because there's a lot going on. Uh, it's sort of like, in my mind, um, you know, a uh, patient who uh, sees a dermatologist. I'm 70 years old, and I've just had, I'm seeing the dermatologist all the time because I just got a lot going on because I lived in South Carolina and enjoyed the sun, and I've just got a lot because right. my skin's been damaged, right? You know, so so eventually they might say, I'm going to give up because I every time I talk to the dermatologist, they're attacking me. Right? I'm over it. So and, I don't go to the dentist. Yeah. I'm kidding, but. Exactly. Yeah. But, but that doesn't mean the risk isn't there. Right. 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 Um, so, so my broader rec suggestion to patients are, you know, don't lose the faith, you know, fibrocystic breast disease, we'll have to wait through, wait through this, but it doesn't eliminate your risk. The risk is still there and you might miss, you might miss it. And we might miss it if we get distracted by the latest cyst, the latest mammogram, so forth. Well, gosh, this has just been a ton of really good information that I know is going to be super helpful to women. And and so normally at the end of my episodes, I will ask, where can our guests find you? Because you'll have an Instagram or a Facebook or something. What, you're on Twitter. Where are you? Where can people hear more from you? Well, I, there is a president uh, Twitter feed, uh, I think also on LinkedIn. Probably okay. that's the best sort of reference. So, yeah, Um happy to sort of engage with individuals. Um, You're not on TikTok? And, uh, nope, not yet. Not yet. But, uh, More to come. Maybe one day. <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, guys, right. God, Dr. Cole, thank you so much. And guys, as always, if you right. liked this podcast, thank you to MUSC for, for sponsoring it. And um, just so happy to be partnering with them this season. It's been such amazing information. Rate the episode, subscribe, and share it with everybody. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye.